back to another episode of the Maroon Weekly. I hope you all had a wonderful and refreshing winter break. I'm William Kamani, joined by Celeste, Kentaro, and Jake. Awesome. Uh, so how were your winter breaks? Boston was relaxing. Always good to take a few weeks and decompress after fall quarter. Yeah, I also did a whole lot of nothing, but it was really nice to be back in Boston for a couple weeks. I was back in Tokyo doing a lot, seeing my friends. It felt felt really fast, and now we're back. Oh, we're in Tokyo. Uh, just downtown. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I love Meguro. There's oh, a, really? Yes. There, there was a coffee shop that I had there. Uh, so I'm Kenyan, uh, and I went there, and they had like four Kenyan coffees. Uh, and I was just super excited. Uh, and then I forget what other neighborhood it was in in Tokyo, Tokyo being huge. Uh, they had, the coffee shop was Coffee Menya, uh, and, and they just had a, another spectacular lineup of Kenyan coffees as well. Maybe I'll check it out next time yes. I'm there. And then also it's like a public transportation nerd, the Yamanote line uh, in, in Tokyo is just like the best thing ever. Like one of the, yeah. I, that subway line, I just love it. Um, yeah, but uh, to get right into our podcast, uh, we have an article on Moongate. Um, so a case stemming from fabricated observations in moon journals went viral on New Chicago social media in a case dubbed Moongate. The class Earth as a Planet satisfies a physical science core requirement and is taught in a lecture format three times a week. Attendance is not recorded, nor is there a discussion or lab aspect to the course. But one assignment embodies Earth as a Planet's controversial reputation better than any other, the moon journal. Throughout the quarter, students are expected to make 15 unique observations of the moon. Each observation needs to include a sketch or photograph of the moon in detail, such as the moon's angle of elevation, its direction, and the location of observation. This assignment asks students to make 15 unique observations of the moon. And um, use of online resources in place of firsthand observations was first allowed during the COVID-19 pandemic as remote students complained of constraints due to quarantining. Fred Ciesla, the professor of the class, stated one of the issues was there were some students who submitted things last year that were just nonsensical. I saw the moon at this time, they said, and it was below the horizon, which is just physically impossible, and demonstrated that they didn't understand a lot of what we had discussed in class. Upon reviewing the moon journals after they were submitted on November 27th, Ciesla found many more academic integrity violations. In a November 30th email, Ciesla wrote that he and his teaching assistants were compiling a list of students who were suspected to have used online resources and who would be referred to the Dean of Students, um, who were also given the option to confess if they had fabricated observations, in which case the penalty could be lessened. The deadline for confessing to cheating would be 11.30 a.m. on Friday, December 1st, the start of the next lecture. According to the email, Moon Journal grades for the entire class would be delayed as a result of the suspected violations. This case went viral on campus, dubbed Moongate, the Student Advocate's Office, a branch of undergraduate student government tasked with advising students navigating administrative and disciplinary procedures within the college, received an influx of emails from students. Ahead of the Friday morning deadline, numerous users on social media purported to have confessed. Others declared that they were determined to fight any accusations of academic dishonesty. Friday's class, the final one of autumn quarter, had record attendance, according to those writers. <laughs> he also spent most of the class delivering a lesson on Pluto. When he finally addressed the Moon Journal at the end, he said that students who had confessed would probably not receive a punishment, but it, 
If they didn't confess and had been suspected of cheating, their cases would be transferred to the office of the Dean of Students. Students who had admitted to fabricating entries would not face disciplinary action and would instead have their Moon Journal grades substituted for their grades on the final, automatically making the final worth half of their overall grade. Um, if it was determined that a violation occurred, students would receive a zero on their Moon Journal assignment and their final grade would be capped at a C. Following this, there was still uncertainty among students who had decided not to confess and students who were afraid of being mistakenly accused of fabricating journal entries when they, in fact, had not. In particular, there was widespread confusion around the university's academic disciplinary system, which varies depending on a student's academic history, year, and the course. The charge might be three counts of academic dishonesty and the reported result is nothing happens, but it's dependent on circumstance, Amanda Davis said, uh, a student advocate's office lead caseworker. Opinions from students differed on whether the punishments were justified as they suggested there was a lack of clear communication. Five days later, on December 8th, the final day of autumn quarter finals week, clarity came in the form of a final email titled Earth as a Planet Update, Final Exam Grades, and Final Grade Resolutions. Students were informed that if they had not received an email letting them know they were suspected of cheating, their moon journal had not been flagged as fabricated. And as for Siesla, next year will be the first year in which he does not teach Earth as a planet, although his reasons don't have to do with this whole scandal. Um, and this uh, article is first reported on in the Maroon by Sabrina Chang and Nikhil uh, Jaswal with um, added reporting from Catherine Weaver and Finn Hartnett. <laughs> what a saga, Moongate. <laughs> What a saga. This is far better than reading some of the course uh, evaluations from, from <laughs> some of the toughest classes at UChicago because sometimes I like snooping through course evals because sure. they're just straight up funny. There was one course eval that I read before that was like, I hope this professor never gets tenure here, not here, or at any other university. Like just going on like a, it was really funny to read. But this is an even crazier to read. I, I don't know why the professor decided to enforce such strict standards this quarter because Earth, I haven't taken my physical sciences requirement yet, but Earth as a planet does have a reputation as being easy and yeah. in some cases a class in which students have engaged in academic dishonesty in. Uh, not saying that I was planning to or have any intent uh, at the university to engage in academic dishonesty, but it does have the reputation, so I don't know why the professor decided to clamp down on it now. Maybe it was like... Yeah, I mean, he's taught it a bunch of times, I think, and maybe was, this quarter was, for whatever reason, more aware of it than ever, made more obviously aware in a way that was uncomfortable for him. Um, it seemed like an emotional topic. I, I know people who were at this lecture who said that he was sort of tearing up, and you know, it was an emotional thing. He really did want people to, to do, do the work of the class, even when it's sort of a goofy moon journal where you have to... I don't know, run outside every, at night sometimes and try to get past whatever buildings are blocking the moon because it's, you know, it's sort of a frustrating thing. I took Origin and Evolution of the Solar System and the Earth, which is a very similar class to Earth as a Planet. It also has a moon journal. It's not a project I particularly enjoyed. I, I wonder what happened to the students who um, who didn't admit to their wrongdoing and were caught, if, if they even bothered with anyone. Yeah. I feel like this whole saga kind of speaks to the power of side chat. And <laughs> the, uh, not just as a tool of discussion, but for the dissemination of information. Um, do you get? I actually don't know super well about side chat or how new it is. But do you guys know how long it's been around? Um, I got it 
I think, like, fall of last year. Yeah. And I think it had been around before that, but it hadn't had the same prominence. Um, maybe it had been around for another, like, six months before or something. It's definitely been around for a while. Funny enough, I actually have a friend who worked at the startup, uh, or, or the company that owns uh, SideChat. It's, it's been around a while. Um, it's just, I think, gained popularity last year. or It gained a lot of popularity last year, leading into this year, but... After some of the recent upgrades to, to side chat, I, I, I actually now hate the platform. It seems clunky, yeah. and I always get those stupid notifications. Join this new group, or I mean this new page, or whatever. Like, the, at one point it was succession, now it's a God knows what. Um, but yeah, I, it used to be a wonderful platform. I used to go there like in the reg when I wanted to procrastinate, but now... A friend of mine goes to Bowdoin, and they have Yik Yak there, not SideChat. But if I look at his Yik Yak, it's the same thing. They must be owned by the same company. They're, they work exactly the same way. Well, on to our next article I reported on, on the state of the university's finances. So longtime listeners have already heard our coverage on the university's financial struggles. Classics and History professor Clifford Ando wrote an essay on the university's ballooning debt and lack of fiscal responsibility, and he led a discussion on that essay, which has still not been published publicly. His essay prompted a response, published in the Maroon, from the legendary Dean Boyer. In Boyer's Viewpoints article, he explained that the university has dramatically increased its undergraduate enrollment in the last 30 years, and discussed improvements we've made in freshman retention rate and curricular offerings. He blames a lack of funds and, obliquely, the presence of billions of dollars of debt on the fact that we simply don't have as many students from the 20th century to give us money when compared to peer institutions like Princeton, Yale, and Harvard. But nowhere in Boyer's argument does he really address the university's debt or where we will have to go from here. He only argues that we will need to find some way to generate new resources without touching on how we'll do that or what sacrifices we may need to make. Boyer's piece prompted a response from the original author of the essay that sparked this, Professor Ando. This was also published under the Viewpoints section of the Maroon. Ando talks about a number of things in his response, including the debt, low growth in the number of tenure-stream faculty in the humanities and the social sciences relative to undergraduate enrollment at large, and gender disparities in professor salaries. Both of these op-eds can be found on the Maroon's website if you'd like to learn more about the shape of this particular discourse. But it doesn't stop there. The issues that these professors were discussing are real, and the university will need to somehow generate new resources, as Dean Boyer said, or alternatively, cut costs. On December 7th, Provost Catherine Baker and the university's newly appointed chief financial officer, Ivan Samstein, discussed their university's finances with employees at an invitation-only budget town hall. The Maroon reviewed their presentation materials, many of which can be found on our website. Our 2023 budget alone had a deficit of $249 million dollars, Nando already estimated that the university had $6 billion of, of debt in 2022. Our revenue is going up more slowly than our expenses, and so the deficit is rising. The university has already begun cost-cutting measures like a staff hiring freeze, voluntary staff retirement packages, and budget cuts for programs across the university. One measure that some students may be aware of was a reduction in RSO funding for the current school year, which I know affected RSOs like Ethics Bowl and Mock Trial by limiting their ability to travel to tournaments. With the higher interest rates that we're seeing in the broader American economy, the university's debt becomes more burdensome than ever. For more information, including Ando's response via email to a Maroon inquiry about this presentation, you can find Elena Eisenstadt's excellent article on the Maroon's website. The RSO budget cuts. There is an RSO that I'm a part of, 
and we are feeling them greatly. Uh, then the solutions the university is offering are not adequate. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a tough time. What is the plan moving forward for the university besides cutting you know, program funding, cutting RSO budgets, uh, you know, just cutting left, right, left, right. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. UChicago is already a depressing school as is. We don't need to start cutting things that make students happy and that, that give students joy. You have to be honest with ourselves. Agreed. I mean, we have to. But how much more can we cut from, from certain RSO budgets? And, I mean, cutting those costs doesn't seem like it would be sufficient. Yeah, I don't think that uh, giving mock trial ten thousand less dollars is gonna save the you know six billion dollars of debt. These yeah. are very different magnitudes. But I, I think the idea is WHBK is gonna make them any happier. I don't think they're gonna go back to their their high schools where they went and, and tell kids, oh, you know, I love my school. In fact, they cut my RSO's budget. Or I don't think kids from mock trial are gonna go, you know, report the happiest reports about U Chicago. I think they need to be a. a, a a bit more generous with RSOs, because I think RSOs is, is where students they mingle, and that's where you really reap the benefits of a UChicago education. Yes, our academics are top-notch. It's a wonderful place to learn, but I think RSOs are kind of like the glue that brings all the students together and, and kind of molds our minds, uh, or, or molds our minds as a collective. Because you have the core, but the core only lasts for the first two years, and RSO involvement after the first two years, I think, is then what keeps the, the university and, and other students together and connected, if that sounds cohesive at all. Yeah, I, I think the university has historically been pretty generous in terms of RSO funding. Um, not to you know, make excuses for any of this, but they've been pursuing this policy of growth, of you know, spending money, building nice things in order to attract students and really reach the upper echelons of American universities, which I think... You know, as Boyer points out, they've more or less done, but at some point they have to pay for all that. And I don't know where we go from here. Um, the Maroon asked why these sorts of presentation materials, um, why this presentation on the deficit and everything, why it wasn't made public. And I believe a university spokesperson said that in the new year, 2024, there will be communications with students about the financial situation of the university. I'm curious to see what form that takes. Um, and I'm curious to, to know, learn how they're planning on, you know, fixing this. I would just love to know, what are they doing to increase fundraising? I mean, how effective do you think their alumni fundraising efforts are? I, I'm not too sure, because clearly we're cutting budgets. Um, I, I ascribe it. You, for a, you Chicago alumni are stingy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if a you Chicago alum is anything like myself, I would hate to have myself as an alum of this school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I ascribe it. I ascribe it more to, to spending than yeah. you know poor fundraising. Although it was noted in this article that our endowment has grown at a slower rate than most peer institutions, and is is just smaller per you know per capita. Do we is our endowment manager not that good? Well, we did just hire a new chief financial officer. Yeah. I love to see the. So that's something to consider. I know the university is never going to do that, like give never. the endowment's portfolio to students, but. I don't want to scrutinize it from like a divestment in a billion things perspective. I just you just want, want them to be prudent? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a really cool book that I read over break called The Boston Trustee. Uh, and it just spoke about prudency and, and endowments and trusts. Um, and I just love to like peek under the hood and see like 
what is this endowment investing in? What, what is our money allocated to? What strategies are we pursuing? Um, what is our exposure to stocks? What is our exposure to VC, PE? All these interesting things. You should infiltrate them. Uh, get, get a job this summer working for the, I know. the endowment I managers. Sure, I don't think I should work for any endowment uh, related to Chicago. Uh, I just... Uh, no, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't whistleblow. I would hate to work for an institution that's, face, that's facing divestment pressures. Sure. I just, I would hate to. I, I just don't think... Um, I don't think the pressures are felt very strongly. Not that there aren't students advocating. I just don't think that within the institutional, you know, workplace environment, people are really acknowledging this significantly. No, they don't, but... There's no real give or take. It's more of a stone wall of they can do what they want. We're going to do what we want. But I I still... They can't affect us. I feel like there's just an added pressure from university endowments. What if you don't, you know perform well enough and they can't fund X scholarship as much as they want to or there's this divestment pressure coming from this club or I, I do just I just imagine that. that they feel pretty insulated from those outcomes you know true true I mean yeah our investment office is actually not on campus if I'm not mistaken it's it's down in the loop that's sure yeah yeah I mean that yeah, that's indicative our, office, our endowment office is in the loop so they're, they're a bit removed um, but still I, I think there's some pressures you have to respond to the board, you have to respond to the president, you have to respond to so many different stakeholders. Uh, that, that can be a lot of pressure. And then maintaining the right portfolio to meet the goals of, of your institution. Yeah, it's probably hard. Not probably, it is really hard to be an allocator. Like, like the endowment, I wouldn't want to do that. Mm, awesome. Well, on to another uh, article regarding the university uh, with SJP protests. During a court hearing in late December, Illinois state prosecutors dropped all charges against the 26 students and two faculty members arrested during a pro-Palestinian sit-in at Rosenwald Hall, organized by UChicago United for Palestine, otherwise known as UCUP. The university charged protesters with criminal trespass to real property, typically a Class B misdemeanor in Illinois, which can carry a punishment of up to, up to six months in jail and a $1,500 fine. According to fourth-year Palestinian protester Yusuf Yaswe, the university required uh, arrested protesters to attend disciplinary hearings during finals week. It should be noted that the protesters face a lengthy legal process to have their records expunged, and they still face a litany of university disciplinary charges, despite the charges being dropped. Uh, Yusuf Yahweh, uh, Yaswe accounted, when we had gotten there to the courtroom, we were all under the assumption that the charges were going to be dropped. Our attorney had talked to the state and they had said that they were not prosecuting protest charges. The Cook County State Attorney's Office declined to pursue the charges, which were originally brought by the University of Chicago and escalated to the state level. The arrest of students and faculty was a significant break with university precedent. The students and faculty were represented by pro bono lawyers from the National Lawyers Guild of Chicago, which has coordinated legal support for many pro-Palestinian demonstrators across Cook County. Yaswe said UC, uh, UP at UChicago was one of the few student coalitions across the country that has seen its university escalate charges to the state level rather than use internal measures. On the same day UCUP's court hearing was held, Brown University pressed charges against 41 anti-Israel protesters who held a similar sit-in. Protesters at UMass Amherst and the University of Michigan Ann Arbor were also arrested and charged after sit-ins. Protesters at other universities, including Harvard, Columbia, and MIT, only faced university discipline. 
Students who took part in the sit-in have been vocal about the toll that the experience has taken on them. Yasue said the arrests and charges, as well as the timing of university proceedings and court hearings, made him feel that the university was being antagonistic towards him and his fellow protesters. Yasue also mentioned that he lost his former job in the admissions office after the sit-in. To read more about this, you can go to the Chicago Morning website or get one of our print copies and read the article, All Charges Dropped Against UCUP Sit-in Protesters. This was first reported on by Tiffany Lee. I find this article really interesting, uh, if you read the full thing, because the sit-in protesters... uh, have taken personal offense to the university pursuing charges against them. Clearly. Which is interesting because if you... Uh, I think I operate on the assumption if you if you, if you partake in a sit-in or go to a protest, like I've been to protests before, not for, not for the Israel-Hamas war, but for climate change and other things that I care passionately about, you're kind of under the assumption that if something goes wrong, you're going to get arrested and... You might be charged. You might be brought to jail. You know, a lot of stuff can happen. Uh, you'll, of course, face disciplinary actions from either your job or, or other, other, other places or other, other uh, way, ways that pressure can be applied because pressure can be applied on protesters from a billion different directions. Um, uh, so I'm not sure why uh, they're not like, kind of complaining about the toll that it's taking on them. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you protest, pay the punishment. There's plenty of protests that are non-disruptive and shouldn't, or shouldn't lead to anything like that. You're not antagonizing anyone else if you're sort of on the street holding yeah. up a sign, even if it's like against something. That's exactly. whatever. This is pretty clearly antagonizing the university. Yeah. They did a sit-in in the admissions office. That's civic disobedience, and exactly. you know, cheers to people who do it. But if if you're being civically disobedient in that way, I don't think it's unreasonable uh, for the university to, you know, pursue the law up to a certain point. The charges were obviously dropped. Um, so people will be fine. But the inconvenience of having to go to a hearing during finals week. <laughs> That's painful enough. <sighs> I can assure you I do not leave the reg during finals week. Sure, but I, 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 I just don't think... I don't think that's a, I don't know, cruel and unusual punishment from you, no, Chicago. No, I think that was rather light with them dropping dropping the charges. I mean, if you're sitting in an admissions building past time of closure, they, you're violating the law. Yeah, and they, they achieved their goal of, you know, making the university uneasy to some extent. Um, I have a, my cousin lives on the north side of Chicago, and uh, her roommate actually works for the admissions office here and was giving a talk to a bunch of prospective parents in Rosenwald as all this was happening. Those parents, I'm sure they were left with a certain impression that was not positive. So, you know, UCUP did something there. Yeah. I mean, uh, before break, I was walking past uh, the, or, the OI. No, it's no longer the OI. It's ISAC. Institute for the Study of Ancient Cultures, ISAC, yeah. Yeah, ISAC. Um, and a group of, pro, uh, a group of uh, pr- prospective students were walking past uh, and some UCUP protesters also decided to break out in their chants, uh, Paul, Paul, you can hide, you invest in genocide, and, and a couple of other, a couple of other uh, catchy chants. It's catchy. Uh, very catchy, and not sure it's effective. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it was just an um, interesting sight to see. I, I, the tour guide, from what I overheard, 
spun it in a really good way of like the university embracing free speech. Yeah. I was like, that, that's a far better, that's was, a far better spin than I would have. I, th- I think I might have known that tour guide. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, it, it was just a, a interesting thing to watch and, and see some Paris like, you know, kind of visibly like, what the hell is yeah, going on? Yeah. I'm about to spend 80 something thousand dollars on sending my kid here and group of kids out here sounding, Paul, Paul, you can hide, you invest in genocide. I mean, just. Yeah, I mean, they're do- they were doing their darndest to make the university squirm because um, they just haven't, you know, had any dialogue with Paul or anyone else because I mean, we, they just don't engage, which right? is generally this university's doctrine when it comes to these and things. I fully support that doctrine. I just wonder if a dialogue hypothetically were to happen, would it even be productive? Would people just sit there and yell at Paul? Would Would President Alavisados just sit there and keep quiet? I I have enough faith in whoever's leading these movements uh, in these protests to hope that they would be able to have a real conversation. But I don't don't think that Alavisados would really have any concessions. Yeah, for them. I mean, there was a video of President Alavisados that, that I I think it was at Isaac uh, at the end of some event, and and some protesters confronted him. And they really didn't give him any chance to speak. In that sort of environment, it would be different, though. I mean, if you're going up to a guy and asking for a meeting, right? You, you'd want to be metered or measured in, in some way, shape, or form. Were they asking for a meeting? Yes. Is that what the... Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, just imagine if someone came up to you, Jake, and... You know, it was like, I hate podcasts, and I think we should shut down podcasts and divest from podcasts, and, you know, I want a meeting with you. Of course you're going to say no. I don't know. I have an open mind when it comes to these things, but it's probably not the most tactful angle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, like, one approach in getting them to notice, which yeah. is then not conducive to anybody wanting Yeah, the, there's two, there's, so, there's spectacle... You and there's like dialogue. And I'm not sure they reached a balance because like yeah. protesting to uh, prospective students obviously is one way to get the university to notice when they otherwise probably wouldn't care. Like RSOs, you know, asking for divestment and they don't give them any credence. Yeah. yeah. But then, you know, they can't go and pretend to be metered and measured and ask for a meeting afterwards. Sure. So it's kind of sure. a hard spot, I think. Yeah. I look forward to five years from now, some new Chicago professor publishing like a paper on the effectiveness of protests and <laughs> heightened, you know, university climates. Yeah. This Academia. is a case study, yeah. Yeah. The professor's probably like, taking notes right now like, <laughs> out of their little office in Weibull or like SSRB or, or Cobb, like looking at protests, like taking notes, like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I think I would agree with Jake. I think there are people who would in good faith like would be willing to have a discussion with President Alvisados, but uh, like again, the precedent of, of of the university's principles, I guess, it, of not engaging with issues like this is just far too strong, and I I don't think a discussion like that could ever happen. Yeah, I, I want part of me doesn't want this discussion to happen, but part of me also just wants it to happen just to see like. How, How would it, it go? Unfold? How would it unfold? What would the dynamics be like? Who on the university side will be invited? Who from UCUP will attend? 
does UCUP want an open forum where all UCUP members can attend and it's just President Alavisados up on like a stage or in a lecture hall? Yeah, that I'm not sure. Do they want a two-on-two meeting? Like, do they want the provost and President Alavisados and then That's like the leader of UCUP and someone else? Like, I don't know. Deputy, I'm not too familiar with the structure of UC, UCUP, but like the deputy leader of UCUP or... Like, well, what, what is the structure of the meeting going to look... Or what, what would the structure of the meeting look like uh, what would the demands be from UCUP? What would the concessions offered from UChicago look like? Uh, or would it just be like a pure, I hear your concerns and yeah. I understand I think that's all from. it would be <laughs> yeah, in practice. So. Yeah. Anyway, uh, on, on the topic of, of the university's climate, uh, we have our last article. Yeah. Um, so this is an article from Naina Purushottamon, uh, the 23rd of December. The university's, uh, the 2023 campus climate survey was conducted in spring quarter, and it asked UChicago students, faculty, and staff about their perceptions of the university's climate and their attitudes and experiences with racism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of bias. And a December email from Provost Catherine Baker gave some preliminary results. Uh, the email states that the survey had an overall response rate of 30%, with responses from 41% of faculty, 21% of students, and 42% of staff members. Fewer survey respondents reported that they perceived the climate on campus as racist or sexist than the previous survey in 2016, but members of minority or marginalized groups continued to report experiencing greater levels of bias on average than their peers did. As for the goal of the survey, the chair of the survey advisory committee, Waldo Johnson Jr., said, quote unquote, the survey results will provide a baseline against which to, imp to measure improvements and track the impact of future efforts, helping the university allocate its resources most effectively to create a welcoming environment where everyone can participate fully in campus life. All right. Well, I think that completes our podcast for this week. Once again, I'm William. I'm Celeste. I'm Kentaro. And I'm Jake. We'll see you again next week.